Welcome to Silicon Slopes Conversations this week. We're with Chad Bracklesburg, who is the Executive Director of the Utah Avalanche Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Garrett. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, this is a fun one. Um, every once in a while we go outside of our lanes a little bit, but I think there's a lot of applicable things for our listeners and our community in uh, having you here. There's a lot of technology that goes into it, plus there's a lot of advice that uh, we should all probably hear. Um, so, have you ever been in an avalanche? Unfortunately, yes. Luckily, it was not a bad one, and it was in the spring, so it was uh, benign, and uh, I was not hurt or anything else. Yeah. It's all fun and games until you're in one. Yeah, we got, we got surprised with what the east wind did to things, and talking later, uh, one of our forecasters, says, forecasters said, you never trust an east wind, and yeah, anybody who watches weather, east winds are not that common, and so they're easy to get surprised by. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, and we'll cover all of that. So also, for those in the audience, we will be opening it up to Q&A, and uh, that'll be towards the end, so get your questions ready for chat. Uh, let's start with uh, the basics. What is the Utah Avalanche Center, and what's your guys' mission and purpose? Yeah, so the Utah Avalanche Center mission is to keep people on top of the greatest snow on Earth, and we do that by providing avalanche forecasting, education, and awareness um, and really what that is, is that's giving people the tools they need to make good decisions when they're in the backcountry uh, to come home safe at the end of the night. And really, it's not just for people who are skiing, extreme sports people. It's, it's for anybody from the Boy Scout groups who go up um, as part of a scouting day to hunters, to snowmobilers, even down to highway workers. You know, Rocky Mountain Power sends people out into, actually into avalanche terrain almost daily in different areas of the state. You know, just south of here in Hobble Creek Canyon is an extremely large avalanche terrain and Rocky Mountain Power's continually doing work up there. So we work with everybody from utility workers to search and rescue teams to the backcountry recreationalists, making sure that they can stay safe, um, you know, with the number one goal of making sure that we can prevent accidents and fatalities in the backcountry. And we really define that the backcountry is just snow-covered mountains, so it's not just in the middle of winter. Yeah. And uh, in mountain communities, every winter and spring, there's going to be people that die, it seems like. Unfortunately so, and with the growth of backcountry use, um, it does get more prevalent, but maybe the good news on that is, is through education and better forecasting tools, you know, people who've maybe been here and in the backcountry for a long time, I've been here for almost 20 years, and the number of people out there has increased by, you know, easily, you know, 15 to 20 times, and yet the average number of fatalities is actually, and accidents for that matter, is staying the same. So, you know, if if fatalities grew at the same rate as the growth of use, you know, there'd be something like 60 fatalities a year in Utah, and instead our, our average is um, really a little bit under three. So while it is, you know, when there are accidents, they do make the news, you know, it is uh, a very low frequency, and you know, we do attribute that to the services that groups like ours and the other educators around the state provide. Yeah, yeah. Um... I've been in, a, in an avalanche, and it was with a snowmobile, and it's just like probably a lot of others, like, hold my beer, I'm going to go um, do this. It was small, um, but it could have gone um, south in a hurry. And I've, got, I've had a few friends that were, you know, it was like 50-50 on if they were going to make it out. And what, skiing, hunting, and even like fishing, they were trying to get to a rarely fished stream in the mountains. Um, but what they had all done is either take classes or uh, had spent a lot of time 
researching and putting in the effort, but uh, newbies oftentimes don't understand the power of snow or the dangers of snow. And so you guys have a lot of educational resources on your website and community outreach. Go over a few of those, please. Yeah, it's, um, as we said, really everything we do is education. Whether we're giving you an on-snow class or the forecast, we're all teaching you how to make these, these decisions. Um, you know, we start, we start out with what we consider basic awareness, you know, being aware that there's a problem. And for us, awareness is the Know Before You Go program. That's um, a program that we started in 2004 after there was actually tragically three teenagers killed up in Aspen Grove right off the base of Timp uh, the day after Christmas, and they had no knowledge that there was an avalanche danger. They had, didn't know that there was such a thing as an avalanche. And it was a massive slide. It came from over 3,000 feet above them when it hit them. Uh, it, at the end, there were 17 people impacted. Three were killed. Two of them were buried so deeply that they didn't find the bodies until April. So extremely tragic, tragic occurrence, especially for the parents and the families. And that made us realize that we needed to do something. We needed to start educating kids at an early age. And we chose the eighth grade age for that. And we compare it to if you grow up in the ocean, you learn about riptides. So we really compare it to that, that if you grow up near or in the mountains, you just need to know that there are dangers of avalanches out there. The program makes it simple of just really not making it a ton of learning, not making it sciencey, just really making sure that these kids are aware that there are dangers. The hope is then as they start recreating and playing in the mountains, they will take a non-snow class. So they'll go out and classes can be anywhere from 12 to 24 hours, you have one and a half to three days. And that's where you actually learn those skills. You learn how to stay safe. You learn how to recognize avalanche terrain, how to avoid it. The goal isn't to teach people how to go into it safely. It's really to teach people how to avoid that avalanche terrain so they don't have troubles in the first place. And then obviously our biggest, I call it our product is our forecast. So for eight regions across the state, every day from other than this year, from mid-November until the end of April, we provide a daily avalanche forecast that teaches people, you know, what's the danger out there today on a scale of one to five? What are the problems, meaning what's out there that's dangerous? So there's different types of problems you might see, and then it tells you how to avoid those. So again, giving people that knowledge of here's where I can go safely, here's the types of places that I should avoid. Um, and so it's a lifelong learning lesson. You even... You know, people say there are no such things as avalanche experts because the snow is constantly changing. It's, you know, it's, you never know what it's going to be from one day to the next. So yeah, it's really important to read things every day and to be continually increasing your knowledge for that. And uh, it makes it a, a really interesting and hard science. Yeah. And a lot goes into it, right? And the disadvantage of mountains and avalanches is you show up at a beach and if the waves are a little big or if it looks a little bit daunting, there's sometimes signs or you talk to the lifeguard, right? Um, and they, you get like instant feedback, like don't go there, go here. But like the Wasatch Front and all of these mountains are big and um, there's helicopters and all of that. I think it's great that you get them around that eighth grade level and make it fun and, and interactive. So what are the ways that you predict outside of what you just mentioned? You've got people, technology, weather forecasts. You're talking about 3G versus 4G chips and all of that. Go into some of the ways you guys yeah. do this. I mean, it it ranges everything from very hands-on and non-technical to very technical. So 
you know, at the non-technical side, we have staff that are in the snow looking at it every single day of the week. Uh, we have about 80 what we call observers around the state. So they're usually recreationalists who we've given some training to who go out and provide field data for us. So in any given day, you might get, um, especially in the central Wasatch, 20 to 30 different field reports. So that information is sort of the non-technical hands-on. What's physically happening on that snow? What are you seeing, hearing, feeling? Um, snow does make sounds, so um, you know, it's telling you things all the time. Um, then there's on the high end, well, I shouldn't say on the high end, you, we have weather stations around the state. Yeah, it's pretty simple in the Wasatch. Everything's kind of wired up. There's cell service, um, more remote areas. You know, some of these weather stations might just be transmitting on a, on a 4G mobile chip. Um, some of them are even older technology that um, I can't remember. You have basically things that's 30 years old. In the Uintas, there is no cell service. So those, those weather stations are still communicating back. Um, UDOT has some amazing technology. They have what they call infrasound, which it's basically... Um, a giant ear that's listening on the top of Little Cottonwood Canyon for avalanches to happen. It picks up the frequency waves, and they know as soon as an avalanche naturally occurs above the, the Little Cottonwood Road, they know when and how big it is by measuring these frequency waves. Um, and then we actually have a, one of our staff is doing a master's project in mechanical engineering, and they're coming up with what we hope is going to be a game-changing technology of they're measuring mass of individual snowflakes. So as it storms, they can measure the mass as the snow comes down, and then they can see density changes in this snow. That will help them. Yeah, a forecaster can wake up in the morning and see density changes indicating different danger levels in the snow all through the mass that's being measured by these. So it creates a great little graph, and it's, it's pretty amazing that... If for me, at least, I, I have a science background. Still to wrap my head around measuring the mass of a snowflake is uh, pretty, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, especially since they're all individuals, right? According exactly. To, yeah. Um, so before global warming, there would be a lot of snow in the mountains and in Utah right now, right? But avalanches like it when there's like intermediate snowfall and then it crystallizes and gets gross, and then there's another one, and then another one. Um, how have you guys had to adapt with the various different years? I hope there will be big years again in the future, but how do you guys adapt to that? You know, every year is obviously unique and different. Um, you know, this year is extremely unique in that, you know, we still really don't have snow up in the mountains. Alta, if you get high enough above 9,000 feet, there's a decent amount of snow on the north, but you know, down low, it's still good mountain biking most places. So, you know, we're definitely seeing a trend that winters seem to be starting a little bit later. Um, you know, we've always had the problem of early season, September, October snow, and then it gets dry for a month. And that's really the worst, the worst case scenario for us. You know, where, what we have now is we had great snow in October. And since then, the snow has just been sitting there, in essence, rotting. Anybody who's ever um, seen the sh snow that's like sugar crystals. That's just weak, faceted snow. And that happens when we get these long periods of cold, dry um, weather patterns. And so even though it's been warm down here, the nights are still cold up high. And so really what's happening is our our snowpack is rotting. It's considered faceting. And um, it's setting us up for probably some extended periods of uh, avalanche danger once it does start snowing, which um, if you care, that might be on Monday. Yeah, hopefully. And then uh, I know there's various different ways that, like oceans and fire, 
levels, it's like no, no danger, don't light a match, don't go in the ocean. How do you guys classify the danger levels? Yeah, for avalanche danger, it's low, moderate, considerable, high, and extreme. Um, for people who did watch, we had a period of extreme danger last year, which is extremely rare. Um, it's you know, really means that avalanches will happen. I always like to say, if you look at the snow, it might avalanche. Right down to low, which is, you know, it's a green color, but it doesn't, you know, green doesn't mean go. It doesn't mean it's a, a go anywhere. It just means that the likelihood of triggering something is, is very, very low. Um, but it's never zero. And so yeah, we, the hard part with that is, is it's not a linear scale. It is an exponential scale. So you know, moderate isn't twice as dangerous as low and, and so on. It actually goes up quite quickly. So in essence, a considerable danger day is significantly more dangerous than a moderate danger day. The challenge we have is that you go to the beach, there's a parking lot, there's you know, an easy way to tell people hey, there's a riptide today or it's a dangerous ocean day, stay out. Uh, here it's a little more challenging. There's hundreds of trailheads across the state. You don't have just one place to get it. So as opposed to us being able to easily, um, people to, we make people come to us, which is, makes it really hard. You know, there's no way that we can push that out. People have to take the initiative to look up the forecast each day. They have to go to the website or subscribe to the email and physically sit down and read that forecast every day. There's no glaring sign right in front of them that just says, avalanche danger is this. You know, it would be great if at some point at every trailhead there was a digital sign that communicated on cell towers that said, today's avalanche danger is moderate. Um, we're I think technology is there to do it. Probably the financial side of that is not there to do it quite yet, but it would definitely be a, a pretty neat thing to be able to do. Yeah, it would be a good sponsorship opportunity for certain companies. Um, so we, there's all sorts of cool innovations, and then back to the, like the old school of figuring out where the avalanches are, what the danger is. And I remember as a kid there was uh, recoilless rifles, like I think it's 105 millimeter. Very cool. Very good job to have if you like shooting stuff and then helicopters would like drop satchel charges and stuff what are the new methods or is it just still the same for triggering the avalanches and getting rid of them before they cause problems yeah so the U at the uac we don't do any mitigation but we do work with the resorts and with udot a lot and you know the resorts are still doing a little bit of recoilless rifles uh they do a lot of hand charges so literally dynamite two or four pound charges that they go out and have 90 second fuses and th throw down the hill and hope to find, as they call it, a sweet spot that'll trigger a slope. So, you know, the resorts have a lot of methods to keep them safe. A lot of the innovation and technology right now is coming in more on the roadside of it, and they're using what they call racks, which is remote avalanche control systems. And if you drive up Little Cottonwood Canyon, and if you look on um, the south, well, the north side of the road, the south aspect, you'll see that now UDOT has, has spent a lot of money installing some of these. And there's everything from gas X, which are giant tubes that come out of the side that um, propel a, an air blast from gas and oxygen mix to now they're using um, towers. And so literally they have, they almost look like a giant uh, disc golf tower. And on top of that, they helicopter a little apparatus. And with, with those systems, 
they can sit in their office at the bottom at Elta and they can just press the button off their phone and trigger these various devices um, to that have been installed in certain spots that are starting zones for avalanches. So they're making it safer and safer to not have to send staff up into those areas, which would to keep the canyons open. You know, that would be in the middle of the night in the dark. They don't have to load a helicopter full of explosives, which is you know, generally not a good idea. So it, all these ways are, all these things are ways to make it safer, faster, and more efficient for the road companies to keep things to keep the road open and to keep. Yep, all of us who are driving up Little Cottonwood safe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you guys are uh, kind of at the vanguard of avalanche protection and all that, but, you know, nonprofit, I would assume. And uh, like all other nonprofits or small orgs, you have constraints and are limited in certain areas. So, a lot of folks in our community like to be outdoors, whether it's extreme skiing or just normal skiing or hiking. Um, what are some ways the community could be additive and provide assistance to you and your team? Yeah, you know, what's really unique about Avalanche Centers is we're partnerships with the Forest Service. So the UAC has 18 staff members, and we're split almost evenly of Forest Service employees and nonprofit employees. So our forecasters who write and publish that forecast every day, most of those are Forest Service employees. Um, the problem is, is that it's not federal, a federally funded program. So 75% of the funds it takes to operate the Utah Avalanche Center comes from the nonprofit. We then in turn fund the Forest Service side of that to pay the salaries of the staff. So it's a really unique partnership and it's really odd. You know, we write this big check to the government every, every spring to make sure we can continue to operate with the staffing. Um, so on the nonprofit side, um, we're responsible for all the education, awareness, and fundraising for the organization. And so we do that through everything from fundraising like every other nonprofit does to events, to writing grants, um, business sponsorships, really the traditional, we are in some ways a traditional nonprofit in that way. Um, we just use the money very uniquely. And so, yeah, we, yeah, like every like every nonprofit, it's at the end of the year, and so end-of-year campaigns are a big thing. We do like to throw parties, so we put on a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, a few different fundraising parties through the year where we, the goal is not just to have, uh, to fundraise, but it's really to get the community together. So even uh, September is our big event, and you know, there's nothing more fun than to see 1,300 backcountry users come together for a night of, you know, supporting us, but also sort of kicking off an early winter, and so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, get your questions ready, audience. So of all the users out there, um, who benefits the most from the services you guys provide? Is it the extreme adventurists or is there a different group of folks? You know, a lot of the extreme people who are out there 100, 120 days a year, you know, they don't benefit as much. They're not taking the classes. They've been doing the sport for years and years. They're able to read observations to read the weather and figure a lot of things out on their own. And so for them, the UAC is just one of many sources they use for information. But when you look at how many people are in the backcountry and how many new users there are, you know, last year with COVID, um, the sales of backcountry gear was up something like 160%. Um, so significantly, we saw a big change in our classes. We had double the number of people come through our classes last year. Um, you know, 
increasing from like 600 to over 1300 students that we put through on snow classes and so it's definitely growing rapidly and it's those are the users who really do benefit from the education and the forecasting side because they're still learning those tools that i talked about they're figuring out what tools do i need in my toolbox do i need a big hammer or a small hammer do i need a flathead or a phillips and it's not always the same answer and so for each day for us to be able to give them the tools to know what to put in their box that day before they go out is the biggest advantage that we can give them. Um, and then the second biggest group is going to be the, these younger kids. So the eighth graders and, and, and above that are getting this basic awareness message. Uh, we, on a traditional year, we would present the No Before You Go program to over 4,500 kids in Utah schools. And so it's a huge reach of that program into into our communities. All right, um, questions from the audience? Right here. So last winter we had the Black Rose of Death. Have you ever seen that before out here? I can't remember the years. We have had some extreme danger days, um, but I couldn't tell you which, which year it was. I do believe this might've been the first time that we had the, the Black Rose across the entire state. What were, for the rest of us? So the Black Rose became a little bit infamous, enough to where we actually created pins with the Black Rose on them that we gave out to uh, people during our spring fundraising campaign if you donated over $200. But the Black Rose is the extreme danger. And so that's your, um, the colors as you were on the scale were you know, green, yellow, orange, red, and black. And so the Black Rose and the Rose part is, if you look at an avalanche forecast, the symbol on it is a date what's called the danger rose and what it is is it's a 3d depiction of a mountain and so it's looking straight down at a mountain where it is there's three elevation bands and then all of your aspects north south east and west are covered and what you do is when you read the danger rose you're knowing that it's at this aspect and this elevation this is my danger and in this case the in all elevations and all aspects were in extreme danger so it's r-o-w-s not r-o-s-e Black rose. R-O-S-E. Oh, it is a rose. Yes. Oh, okay. It is a rose, and it looks sort of like a rose when you look at okay. it. It has shapes and whatnot. Got it. Very cool. Um, good question. Another one? About the, you know, you mentioned the 80 field observer, observers, um, but there's also the whole community that are submitting observations. Um, how much are the forecasters looking to those observations when they're doing their work? And then also, do you see any unrealized potential in there? Is there any kind of ideas of how to work that more into kind of what you guys are doing? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so the community observations, there's, we have the people who are in our observer program who we make sure they're trained, but ac actually anybody in the community can submit an observation on our website and literally we make it front and center. If, if you're on the Utah Avalanche Center website, on the upper right there's a big button that just says observation with a plus on it. And we don't, we don't care who submits, we want more information. And so in, as part of our on snow classes, we actually train people on how to do those submissions. You know, even if it's, a, if it's as simple as things of, you know, hey, the wind was blowing a different direction than the forecast said, and here's where I was. Um, the forecasters do look at every single one of those that are submitted. Uh, on an average year, we have about 1,400 of those submitted across the state. So it's a significant part of what they do. You know, we may, in the central Wasatch, we may maybe only have two or three people out on a given day. So they can only see a very small amount of terrain. In the entire Uinta range, we have one forecaster. So they get to see 
almost nothing of that, how big that range is. So these field observations are one of the more important tools that they use to gather the data they need to understand what's happening and where. Um, we call it spatial variability. What you see in Mill Creek might be very different than what you see in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And so that's how they start gathering that data to know that um, what elevation, as I said on the danger rows, that's the information they use to start plotting out what is the danger level at each of the different locations on the rows. Did that help? Sorry, I forgot about that part. <laughs> um, yeah, the, that program should, con we do hope to continue to grow that, um, especially in areas outside of the central Wasatch. You know, there's, like I mentioned, how big the Uinta range is for anybody who's been out there. You can have very different snowpacks and danger levels on the north slope out of Evanston versus Weber, or Weber Canyon versus an area over by Wolf Creek Pass. And so being able to get more people who submit from these rural and non-core areas is one of the biggest areas that we see a need right now. And that also includes, since we're down in this area, that also includes information coming from Provo Canyon area down here. Hi, question. Um, so I saw that you have experience in for-profit organizations and now you're transitioning. What are the challenges that you have seen? Um, I know okay, I'll try to hit all those, but you might have to remind me of them. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually spent 20 years of my career in the tech industry at doing consulting. Um, years and years ago, I started out as a Unix admin when it was still Sun OS. So um, one of the reasons I'm super excited to be here is my tech background. And I moved to Utah in 2002, and to have seen the tech industry here grow since then has been pretty amazing. Um, yeah, there wasn't a ton of tech industry back when I moved here. So um, I never worked in Utah when I was in, my, in the tech industry. I was always flying somewhere else because of the, way, the nature of the business here. So to see what's happening here has been pretty fun. Um, I left, I, I kind of say that I have my dream job. I don't work any less than I did in the tech industry, but it's sure a lot more fun for me. Um, yeah, the nonprofit world really isn't any different than the for-profit world other than the tax designation. You know, we have customers, we have um, products. Our product is oftentimes free, sometimes it isn't. Um, we have shareholders. In essence, our shareholders are our donors. We need to make sure that our donors are getting the products and the services that they expect. And so, yeah, I have my shareholders personally are the board, who's my bosses. And so I have 16 bosses that I have to manage. Not that much different than being on a consulting gig for a, for a big client. Um, so there's, it is very similar. Um, I think one of the challenges in the nonprofit world is just the pay discrepancy. Um, it's really hard to recruit great leaders and um, great talent when there's this stigma on what a nonprofit should pay their staff. You know, how do you recruit a great leader of any nonprofit organization when they can make four or more times more money working for in the in the for-profit sector? Um, we are extremely lucky as a nonprofit. People want to work for us because they're passionate about the avalanche industry or the outdoors. Um, we're able to recruit good people, but you know, we're we're still not able to pay them what really they should be paid. Um, and I told Esther earlier that, you know, I've led teams in the corporate world that were paid far more than my staff is now. And I don't think they could have accomplished what my staff did 
during COVID. Um, it was absolutely unbelievable to see a young staff of 20-somethings who were able to truly reinvent the way we did business from how do you offer on-snow classes? How do we deliver an awareness program that normally goes to 8,000 people in person? How do we deliver that during a pandemic? Um, and they figured it out really well. So it was really amazing to see. And so, um, it, but it's definitely a challenge. You know, they can... Um, you know, they can go somewhere else and, and definitely make more money. And so it's a, it's a really hard thing. Did I catch all your questions? you hear me on that or do I need it? Yeah, so the question is what other resources should a user look at? And um, it really depends your level. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this, maybe a long answer for it. But if you are maybe not an experienced backcountry user or just somebody who wants to go snowshoeing up Mill Creek or up at Elta, up the Summer Road, there's some great online training programs. I talked about the No Before You Go program. Um, that website is kbyg.org. There is a, a presentation that as part of our COVID protocol, we turn from in-person to an online learning module. Then there's five more courses after that. So you can get around five hours of awareness education for free that way. Um, beyond that, then you can start looking at books. Uh, Bruce Tremper, who is the retired director of the Forest Service side of the, of the UAC, has a book called Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain that it's, it's sort of a must read for anybody. And, you know, it's really an annual read. You know, it's one of those books that you dog ear every third page and go back and read every fall. Um, you know, once you have some of that education or the basic education, taking an on-snow class, you know, the UAC offers what we call Backcountry 101. So instead of having to commit three days, you can commit a day and a half and get this introductory knowledge. And so it's a great place to start with that. Um, you know, practicing on your own. Uh, rescue skills are crucial. So using your transceiver probe and shovel, and you don't need snow to do that. You can you know, go out any time, even in your backyard, and practice just with a pile of leaves. So doing that standard practice, and then when it comes time to actually getting on the snow, um, it's reading the forecast every day, not just the days that you're going out. So the forecast tells you a story, and that story is built up over days and weeks. And so if you just read the forecast every Saturday morning when you're going to go out, you don't know what happened in the last five or six days. So um, reading it every day allows you to build that story in your mind. Reading the observations that we've talked about are one of the best ways to learn. You're, you're learning what other people are looking at and how they're looking at snow. Um, and then other resources on the internet. Um, I'm not a big fan of Instagram as a resource. You can find out what some people are doing, but um, you also find out that some people are maybe doing things and getting away with it. Um, you know, it's a considerable danger day and somebody's skiing off the top of Superior. Was that a good choice? Did they get lucky? You know, they make it look great on Instagram, but, you know, it's maybe not the best, the most reliable source out there. Um, you know, there are a few other people who push things out on their websites, but weather sites are great. You know, finding what weather station, what weather app do you use and do you know how to use, whether it's the NOAA weather stations for the point forecast, open snow, but really following the weather. Um, the weather is the architect of avalanches. So wind, warm temperatures, all these things are what can drive that. So really watching the weather to know what's happening is the next best thing to reading the forecast. Yeah, uh, the guys that I go out with, we, we use that on the snow a lot. Um, it's a great app. Uh, kind of with that, have you guys thought about developing an app for so we do have an, going, to, going to the website? We do have an iOS app. Um, 
we need to rebuild our iOS app. So we're actually in the process of an RFP process for a new web development company. And as part of that, we'll be looking at a new developing a new app. Um, it's it's a little bit aged. It does have all the forecasts on it. Um, it has a weather section where you can bookmark weather for the point, the NOAA point forecast for various locations you want. It has an inclinometer on it so you can check your aspect and elevation in various places. Um, unfortunately, when that app was developed, um, the Android system was did not have a standard GPS chip, and we just didn't have the resources to build an Android app and be able to test it with every different chip out there. Um, I think that's gotten a little easier to do now, and so, um, you know, when we also built the app, less than 1% of our mobile views were from Android devices. That rate, that's now up to about 20%. So clearly the need is out there for an Android app, and we hope to have that, but it, it might be a season or two away. So there is, there is an iOS app that's usable? There is an iOS app, yes, and it is on the App Store. And last question, what touring setup do you have? Probably one that not many other people want. Um, I'm somewhat of a weight weenie, so I don't typically see a need for skis much bigger than 85 or 90 millimeters underfoot. So I go with smaller skis that are lightweight with um, an actual ski mountaineering race binding, which is, you know, the bindings weigh less than 200 grams. And then a lightweight boot that just has a, uh, if anybody knows the BOA um, retention system, it's a BOA over the instep and one buckle. And so... You know, my whole setup weighs less than two pounds a foot. That is one of my hobbies. So I, that is, there's a ski mountaineering racing is this silly little uh, sport where you race uphill and ski downhill. And um, for that, a typical race setup would be, um, uh, let's see, that the boots weigh less than, less than a pound each. They're all carbon. Um, that's where a lot of the innovation is coming out of is uh, one of the binding manufacturers started turning aluminum bindings from leftover Ferrari parts. And so they realized that they had all this aluminum left over and they could make ski bindings out of it. They're, they're, they're Italian and that's, I guess, what you do in Italy. Good for them. Any more questions? We've got time for one more. Yeah, with all your knowledge and background and... Uh... Do you find time to still have fun in the snow, or do you like go down a side and dig a pit before you go down? I mean, <laughs> is it too scary, or is uh, the science more fun, or does that knowledge kind of scare you? I think the answer is yes to all of that, actually. So I, I love skiing. I love, I mean, I started skiing at three years old, and yeah, I got into backcountry skiing when I moved here, and yeah, it's my mental sanity, it's my solace, it's my... It's my happy place to be in the mountains, whether it's summer or winter. Um, there's days that are for different things. You know, last season, um, between the stresses of COVID and all the unknowns and everything that we dealt with, and then a, a hard snowpack, a lot of fatalities. You know, I personally, I didn't have the, ment the mentality kind of emotionally or psychologically to get into big terrain all winter. Um, I was happy um, doing what we call OPP. It's old person powder. It's 28 degree slopes in the trees that you can just wiggle turn all day long safely. And I was totally happy doing that all winter last year. Um, you know, I do like skiing bigger things when the conditions are right. And I also like digging a hole and spending 20, 30 minutes looking at snow. And, you know, you have, uh, have a, a big uh, 
um, almost like the old, for people who did slide photography, the small little loops that you used to use. I have like a, a 50X one of those. So you can actually look at individual grains of snow and see the structure on them. And I can spend a long time looking at individual grains of snow at the same time. So it really depends on the day and what the conditions are like at that, for that day of what my motivation is. So at the end of the day, it sounds like even for an expert like you, with all the data and all the experience, like there's still that sixth sense that you apparently feel where it's like, I'm not going to do this today, which is probably something people should follow. If they get that sense, they should probably listen to it. Yeah, there's some research being done now on you know, in the value of intuition on decision making and how, and this isn't necessarily just for, for avalanche people, but how experts in a field use a certain amount of intuition along with their intelligence to make decisions. And that intuition can go a long ways, you know. It, it's not just how are you feeling, it's also other things that have impacted you. You know, did, did you not sleep well the night before? Well, that might impact your decision making. Did you get in a fight with your spouse that morning? Or um, you know, are you hungry, are you thirsty? So there's so many things that can impact decision making. Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to group dynamics, you know. Some, I've been out with people who you're just not clicking with the group that day. And you know, those are the days you listen to it and you're like, well, maybe we'll dial it back. Maybe we will turn around early. Um, but yeah, that, the intuition and the, the sixth sense is, is a big, big part of being safe. And then never trust an east wind. Exactly. Got it. Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time. I hope uh, listeners out there uh, contribute funds and time and effort to it because um, what you guys do benefits the, the entire community. And um, when these things happen, everyone's sad and, and irritated. And uh, with a little bit more forethought and preparation, these can be minimized. So thank you, Chad. Thank you to your, and your team for all that you do. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Garrett. And one last shameless plug is next week, uh, Sunday through Saturday, is Statewide Avalanche Awareness Week. So it's something that we got passed with a House bill two years ago. And so uh, we have over 20 events going on next week. So you can check the blog portion of the Utah Avalanche Center.org website. And uh, would love to see you at one of our events next week. Cool. Thank you, Chad. Thanks, Garrett.